Let's open our Bibles together now to the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we are going to be in verse number 1 as we continue through. We finished up chapter 8 last week. This mountaintop of chapter 8 of, of these glorious theological truths for the believer. Now this morning we'll be looking at the first five verses of chapter 9 together. So hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we love your word. We love you. We pray, God, that by your spirit, working through your word this morning, that you would change our hearts. Lord, that even those who are, who are bound up in death would be called to life this morning. Those who are steeped in sin would be called to repentance this morning. Those whose faith is wavering would be strengthened this morning. Lord, these things are things that only you can accomplish. And so we pray, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish your good purposes in us and among us and through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we begin to wade into Romans chapter 9, I want to say some things up front uh, about it. Uh, first of all, Romans chapter 9 is a very difficult passage. Uh, you, you may or may not be aware that there is much controversy that surrounds Romans 9, 10, and 11, and particularly situated in Romans chapter 9. It is a very difficult passage. We just need to know that going into it. I don't mean that it's difficult to understand. It is not difficult to understand. Paul's language is very straightforward. It's difficult to accept. Our natural minds do not want to accept the things that Paul says here. And so there are many Christians who find what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to be very difficult to, to swallow. In fact, so difficult to swallow that, that they'll do gymnastics of all sorts to avoid dealing with what it is that Paul says. They try to find some other meaning other than the clear, straightforward reading of the text. Now, they don't do that anywhere else in Romans. They just do it when they get here. Everything in Romans is straightforward until we get here, and then they say, now, what Paul really means is this over here, as if he's begun to speak in riddles. So this section is admittedly very controversial, it is very hard to accept, but friends, it is the very Word of God. And so we're not going to skip over it, we're not going to be embarrassed about it, we're not going to be apologetic about it. Whatever God says is true, amen? And whatever is true 
is good. It's beautiful. It's pure. It's lovely. It's perfect. And so we're going to teach God's word as such. Secondly, if you're looking for answers to difficult questions about God's sovereignty in salvation, Romans 9, 10, and 11 has much to say. There are difficult theological questions that need to be asked, and this section of Romans addresses them. There's nowhere else in all of Scripture that deals with the topics of election, predestination, God's sovereign choosing, like Romans 9, 10, and 11. Has much to say to us about those topics. Now, some of those words may make you cringe when you hear them. I can remember sitting in a Sunday school class in this very church when I was newly the pastor here, and they were talking about something from the passage, and someone said, hold on now, that sounds like predestination. And I had to say, that's actually a Bible word, so we shouldn't freak out about it. <laughs> but we cringe when we hear some of these words. Well, Romans 9, 10, and 11 has a lot to say about these topics, which brings us to our third point that I want to say up front. You may hear that and go, oh, no. Does that mean in the coming weeks we are going to talk a lot about God's sovereignty and about predestination and about election? And the answer is, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about it a lot, like a lot. Why are we going to talk about it a lot? Because it's my pet topic? No, because we're working our way through Romans verse by verse. And it's what God chose to talk about right here. So I'm not going to dance around it. I'm not going to tell you I'm sorry about it. I'm going to tell you it's beautiful and that I love everything that God reveals to us in his word. If we can't talk about these topics, friends, we can't study Romans 9. We have to skip it. But to just skip the whole chapter, maybe skip the next three, and just move on from there with his practical instructions about Christian living. But Know this, I don't have some kind of secret agenda. I'm just not willing to skip whole chapters of the Bible. I think that's fair. More than that, though, I'm happy to talk about these topics. I'm delighted to talk about these topics are good news because the Bible teaches them. That makes them good. It makes them beautiful. The Bible is fully inspired, inerrant, authoritative. Therefore, whatever it teaches, we ought to love. Not cringe at. Not get mad at God about. We ought to love it. There's nothing like understanding the absolute sovereignty of God. There's nothing like it. More than any other doctrine, the sovereignty of God magnifies his grace. The sovereignty of God exalts his grace. And so that's how we're going to treat it going forward. So as we, as we work through Romans 9, here's where Paul's going to be taking us. Let me give you just a little overview. This morning, we're looking at the first five verses where Paul expresses his heart for Israel. He's, he's preparing to answer some very difficult questions that have arisen from what he has taught us so far in chapters 1 through 8, and particularly some of the astounding claims he's made in chapter 8 about God's love and care for his people But if God has made these promises to his chosen people, then, then what does it mean that Israel has, by and large, as Paul writes these words, not accepted them, not accepted Christ? They've, they've rejected him. They've rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Does it mean that God's promises to Israel have failed? Well, before Paul wades in and begins to answer that, he lets us see his heart. And, and seeing Paul's heart for these people will help you accept the answers that he gives. The answers that he gives are difficult for the natural man to accept. But as we see Paul's heart of love, it helps us to accept 
his teaching as not hateful, as not cold and calculating, but as truth. Next then, verses 6 through 13, Paul explains that God's promises have certainly not failed. What's Paul's answer to that? How is it that God's promises haven't failed if Israel rejects Jesus? And Paul's answer is, well, it's because not all of Israel is Israel. What on earth does that mean? You'll have to come back. Verses 14 through 18, Paul answers another protest. Just having told us that God chooses some and not others. This protest arises. It's the same protest that arises in our hearts. And the protest is a simple one. That's not fair. Paul, that is not fair. What you are saying is not fair. It is not fair for God to choose some and not to choose others. That's the most common protest to God's sovereignty. Is that it's simply not fair for him to be sovereign. It's simply not fair for him to be the one who makes the choice. And in verses 14 through 18, Paul gives us God's divinely inspired response to that. What is that response to the protest, that's not fair? Keep showing up to church. Verses 19 through 24, Paul addresses another objection. If, if God is sovereign, well, I mean, that just makes us robots, right? Nothing we do matter. Our choices don't matter. How can God possibly hold our sins against us if no one can resist his will? Paul tackles that question in that next section in verses 25 through 29. Paul goes to the Old Testament to show, though, this is how it's always been. Nothing has changed here. Paul's not making new theology up as he goes along. There has only ever been one plan of salvation, and that is God's choosing of a people for himself for his own glory. Then in verses 30 through 33, Paul explains why it is that Israel has failed to embrace the promise of God. And he says, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ and instead chose a salvation of their own making, a salvation of their own works. Oh, friends, this is a great chapter. It's a chapter that people fight about. But it's a chapter so rich and so full of theological truth. But it starts here with this little prologue from Paul that we'll be looking at today. Paul is going to be, in this chapter and in chapters going forward, answering significant theological questions, serious theological questions, the kind of questions that Christians still fight about right now because we have just as much trouble with them as Paul's original audience did. In Paul's day, the significant question he's addressing is, why is it that Israel has mostly rejected Jesus? How can this be? He, he, if he is the Messiah sent to God's chosen people, why are more Gentiles, non-Jews, coming to faith in him than Jews are? Explain that to me. God made all these promises to them. Is he just not fulfilling them? Why, why is it, Paul, that in your ministry... More Gentiles by far are responding to the gospel than the people who you say are the ones to whom the Messiah was given in the first place. The Old Testament prophets had to deal with similar questions like this, similar problems like this regarding God's promises. God had chosen Abraham just out of all the people on the earth. He just points at Abraham and says, you're mine, and he begins to make promises to him. 
God promises that he would be with him and his descendants forever. He promised to, to settle him in the land of Canaan forever. And then God adds to those promises with David. And he says to David that, that you and your sons will reign on the throne of Israel forever. But then came the exile. Then came this time. This, the, the divided kingdoms of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, were carried off into bondage. They not only felt far from God during that time, but they were no longer in the land that God had promised them. The kingly line of David was no longer on the throne, even though God had promised that it would go on forever. And so the people of God are left wondering what exactly is going on. Did God's promises fail? Has he abandoned us? The nation of Israel didn't exist anymore. The kingly line of David was done. They were exiled from the land. And so the prophets spoke to these fears. The prophets spoke to these questions. And one way they answered them was to tell the people of God, God will surely rescue us from this captivity. This isn't forever. God will rescue his people. Another way they spoke about that was to use the word remnant. That is, despite the overall disobedience of the nation, there remains a loyal, faithful, believing people. And those who remain faithful to God will have his favor no matter where they're living, whether they live in Judah or whether they live in Babylon, the faithful remnant has the favor of God. But the greatest answer that the prophets gave was this, God is going to send the Messiah to reestablish the throne of David. He, he, he will reign forever. He will gather all his people to himself. And so the biggest solution that the prophets give to the people of God to assure them that God's promises have not failed and will not fail is to tell them the Messiah surely will come. But that only shows us how serious Paul's problem is now. Because as Paul is addressing these first century Christians, the Messiah has come. Israel's Messiah has come to them. God's promises are being fulfilled, and how did they respond? They rejected him. They despised him. The Old Testament people of God, Israel, had largely rejected God's Messiah. How, how, how can that happen? Did God's promises fail? Well, the Apostle Paul's answer to those questions, those accusations, is the sovereignty of God. That's the answer Paul gives. That's where he points us, the sovereignty of God. He says, the only way you can understand all of this is to understand God's sovereign electing love. In other words, the only way to understand that God's promises have not failed, will not fail, could not fail, is to understand that God's grace is God's choice. His choosing is grace. That's the profound truth that Paul begins to explain in this amazing passage, in this amazing section of this letter. And Paul is going to prepare us for his answer. Paul is going to prepare us for what he is going to say with these five verses we're looking at this morning as he reveals his heart. And so as we Hear the hard teaching that Paul has for us as we go through the rest of this chapter and even the next couple chapters. We cannot separate that teaching from this heart of compassion, 
We have to keep this on the forefront of our mind. Paul is, is preparing us to hear what it is that he's going to say. Again, Romans chapter 9 is not hard to understand. It is hard for us to accept. But if we can understand Paul's heart, it will help us accept the truth that Paul teaches. It'll help us see through some of the accusations that our own humanness wants to, wants to make against it. And it also is to show us, Paul's, Paul's opening statements here in these five verses, is to show us what the truths we're going to see in Romans chapter 9 ought to produce in our own hearts. It's not that we are supposed to look at Paul and go, oh, how he loved those poor lost people. No, it shows us what understanding these truths ought to do in us, a heart of great love and mercy and grace and compassion for the lost. So that was the introduction to the sermon. Now we're ready to, to start, to look at today's verses. Look at verse number one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul begins by showing us the utter grief that he has over the lost. He's, he's showing us the posture that we too ought to have as Christians towards those who are unbelieving, towards, towards those who are under condemnation. Paul, who is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, wants to make it perfectly clear how he feels about his kinsmen, how he feels about the people of Israel. He's filled with compassion for them. He is filled with compassion for his fellow Jews. He loves them. He hasn't abandoned them. He longs to see them come to salvation. And, and just like Paul, our attitude towards the law shows us a lot about our heart, shows us a lot about our Christianity, our attitude towards the lost. It shows how much we ourselves have tasted of the grace of God. Because Paul is not looking at his kinsmen with some sort of righteous indignation that says, I'm so good and you're so terrible and you're going to get what's coming to you one day. He is filled with agony over his kinsmen who are lost. So the question we must ask ourselves is, is my heart the same? Is my heart the same as Paul's heart? Do you agonize over the fate of the lost? Is it a burden to you? And if it's not, why not? What, what is it? What isn't it in you that makes you not care? These are hard questions we need to ask ourselves, friends. They're hard questions I've had to wrestle with this week. I can, I can assure you of that. Well, maybe it's because you believe God couldn't really condemn anyone. Oh, how often I've heard that, that exact sentiment. The God I worship would never condemn someone to such a thing as hell. Hell's just an outdated doctrine. Or perhaps it's, it, it exists, but it is only for the worst of the worst. Ne ne never for someone like me, not for the people I love or care about. Well, let me just say, it's clear from what Paul says here that that's not what he thought at all. Paul didn't believe that at all. He is agonizing over those who do not submit to Christ. He is agonizing because he believes what the Bible says about the eternal fate of all who reject Jesus Christ. 
That's why Paul's in agony. If if there's no hell, if hell's not eternal, if those apart from Christ just eventually get to come to heaven one day, love wins, or they just go into some sort of soul sleep and just sort of cease to be, then there's no reason to agonize. Where's the agony in that? Well, it's because Paul believes exactly what Scripture teaches us, but, but perhaps that's not it. Perhaps you believe all that Scripture says, it's just that your heart hasn't grown in compassion. You've trusted in Christ, you love Him, you're growing in faith, you love His Word, you just haven't grown in your compassion for the lost, or perhaps over time, your heart has grown hard. Well, one of the things that Romans chapters 9 through 11 will do for us, if we learn it correctly is to give us a heart of compassion for the lost. You can either have one formed in you, you can have your heart, all, all that crust around it broken up so that you feel again. That's what understanding these truths will do for us. When, when Paul saw God's sovereignty, when Paul saw God's holiness, when Paul saw his own sin and unworthiness and he saw what his sin deserved, when he considered the helpless condition of the lost, when when he saw then what God had done for him in Christ Jesus, it caused him to have abounding compassion. It caused him to to respond to God in thankfulness and humility and worship and, and compassion on those who are still apart from Christ. Still still in that pit we saw Paul describing in the early chapters of Romans as he describes people locked in prison in in this pit of filth and rebellion and sin and condemnation, not even wanting to get out. And Paul looks at them in light of what Christ has done for him and the fact that he was in that pit. And God rescued him, not because of his own merit, but because of God's own sovereign choosing. We can't argue that with Paul, can we? On the road to Damascus, we don't read of Paul stopping his horse and saying, you know, I've thought about things. I choose Christ. That's not how it went, is it? Paul looks at what God had done for him. And it produces in him compassion for those that are still blind, still dead, still bound in sin. So as we see Paul grieve over the lost, we ought to join him. We ought to join him in that. That should be the attitude of our heart for the lost as well. The doctrines of predestination and election that Paul teaches here are not cold and uncaring towards the lost, just the opposite. They produce in the Christian compassion. They produce in the Christian this understanding of there but for the grace of God go I. I am not better than these people. I'm not smarter than them. I'm not innately more righteous than them. It is the sovereign grace of God who chose me for his own good purposes. Oh, friends, that produces in us humility and compassion. He goes on in verse 3. For I, I could wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This this is the heart of mercy that the doctrines of grace produce in us. 
when they're rightly understood. The doctrines of grace produce this kind of heart of love and compassion, where Paul says, I would willingly be damned if only my people could come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's the most intense kind of love I can imagine. He's not saying I would die for them. He's making a statement that is so out there. I look at him saying this and I think, I don't know that I would say that about anyone. Bob Dylan back in the 80s had a song called, I Ain't Going to Hell for Nobody. And I hear those words and I go, yeah, right. <laughs> Me neither, Bob. The, the, the truth is, Paul is expressing something intense here in this statement. This is not a casual statement. I would go to hell if it meant they could know the Lord, know their Savior. Now, to be clear, Paul knows that can't happen. He's not bargaining with God. He's not saying, I think I might be able to pull this transaction off. Remember, this is directly following what we saw last week. Those, those words we read last week as we came through Romans chapter 8, where Paul makes it perfectly clear that it is impossible for the believer to be separated from God's love in Christ Jesus. So he doesn't think this is going to happen. He's not trying to make this transition, transaction happen. He, but, but to express the intensity of his love for these people, to express the intensity of the grief he feels about their lost condition, Paul says, I would be cut off if it meant that they could be reconciled. If his brothers, his kinsmen, the Jews, would come to embrace their Messiah, to, to embrace Christ, Paul says, I would be cut off if it meant that. He knows it can't happen. He knows that's not how it works. He's just expressing deep anguish, deep sorrow that he feels for them. And this heart that Paul has towards the Jews is not just about kinship. It's not just that they are ethnically his relatives. As we're going to see, his heart breaks over them because of the important historical role they played in the plan of God. Because of the great privilege that God had shown them. He'll show us that shortly, but, but friends, again, we ought to have this same heart towards the lost. I'm not saying you need to go around vainly saying, I'd go to hell if it meant they could go to heaven. In fact, I don't recommend it. This is the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, making that statement. It's not something you should flippantly say because you love someone. But our heart towards the lost ought to be like Paul's, broken, anguished sorrowing, desperate to see them come to a saving knowledge of Christ, desperate to see them reconciled to the God who made them, who gives them life and breath. Friends, we, we've been shown, as Paul's going to show us the great privilege that the Israelites have been shown, we've been shown great privilege. When we look at the lost around us in our community, we are looking at people who have been shown great privilege to have heard the true gospel and still reject it is a devastatingly sad thing. The lost around us have likely heard the true gospel at some point in their life. How sad. How, how sad to reject that. Do you have the heart of Paul towards unbelievers? Well, if we understand the doctrines of grace that Paul teaches in Romans 9 through 11, if we come to know and believe and love these truths, it will produce in us a heart like Paul. 
It's these very truths that are motivating Paul's heart of love and compassion. We'll we'll have hearts of grace and compassion and mercy. Those who believe the truths of God's sovereignty in salvation ought to have more of a heart for the lost than anyone. Phil Riken says this, we, we respond to God's mercy by becoming merciful ourselves. Sadly, people who believe in election are not always known for their mercy. But it seems that someone who understands the wonder of God's mercy would seek to become a living demonstration of it. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But you know, we could also reverse that statement and say, blessed are those who have been shown mercy, for they will be merciful. I I love that statement he makes there, that, that someone who truly understands the wonder of God's mercy should ought to seek to become a demonstration of it, a living demonstration of the mercy of God. I was struck by those words, just, ty- just typing this out on my notes. And I thought, how often am I consciously aware of being a lim- living demonstration of the mercy of God in Christ? And the answer is, I don't give it a whole lot of thought. I try to be nice to people, try to be loving. Wouldn't it change... Some of our pettiness, if we thought about this, though. Wouldn't it change how quickly we get offended? Wouldn't it change how often we demand our rights or how quick we are to, to judge someone else if we were consciously aware of seeking to be a living demonstration of the mercy of Christ? Well, Christian, one, one of the ways to te- test your grasp of God's mercy is to ask, how do you treat other people? But maybe a better question than how do you treat them is how do you think about them? How do you respond in your heart to the rebellious sinner? To the one who Scripture says is helpless. Oh, they're happy in their sin. There is a righteous indignation that rises up when we see God's name blasphemed, obviously. But this is a person, according to Paul, as we've seen in the book of Romans made abundantly clear, are totally bound up in their sin. How does our heart respond when we see that person? How quickly does our righteous indignation for the name and the glory and the honor of God turn into some sort of personal offense where we just find them distasteful and don't like them? How do we respond towards that mother considering an abortion? That extremely liberal family member on Facebook what, what thoughts do you think towards the one you disagree with? Or just the church member that frustrates you? Those who truly know God's mercy know that the only hope for themselves, the only hope for everyone else is found in the mercy of the cross. Those who truly understand God's mercy know that we are not better than anyone else. We're not smarter than them. We're not inherently more holy righteous than them. It's only because of the sovereign grace of God, given to us not because of our own goodness, not because of our own working, not because of our own merit, but because of God who purposed it in Christ before the foundation of the world to be merciful to us. That's it. That's what separates me from the most vile sinner. God purposed to show me mercy. 
It's nothing in me. These truths that Paul is going to teach us in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 destroy pride. It's one of the reasons that mankind hates it. Think of our objection. I might get myself in hot water here, but let's do it anyway. That objection that rises up in your heart, maybe this morning, that says, no, it actually is unfair if God chooses and we don't. How arrogant is that? You're talking about the creator God of the universe, all-knowing, all-good, fully perfect, righteous in all that he does. And we think we're better off to make the choice than he is. These truths destroy pride. That's why we hate them. That's why natural man hates them. Our, our only hope, the only solution to our depravity is sovereign grace. That's it. There's no room for pride in that. If we really understand this, if we really understand what Paul's going to tell us about election, what he's going to tell us about predestination, what he's going to tell us in these doctrines of grace, we will not be proud. We can't be. We will not be judgmental. How could we be? Instead, we'll be messengers of God's mercy. Even as we warn of the judgment to come for all who refuse, there is a time and they need to speak truth in love that tells a person, you must bow the knee before Christ. You must turn from your sin or you will perish eternally. I'm not saying we turn into wallflowers who are afraid to speak the truth. But even as we warn of the judgment to come, for those who are refusing and rebelling against Christ, we are doing so saying, let me be a living demonstration of the mercy that God has shown to me. That's what these truths produce in us. Micah 6, 8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? This will be the heart response of those who rightly understand the truths that Paul will unfold in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The final thing then we see in this introduction to this section of Romans is that we must never presume upon God. We must never presume upon the grace of God. Look at verse 4. They are the Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh, you can hear the anguish in Paul's voice as he, as he goes through this list. This isn't an angry listing Paul's doing here. It is a broken-hearted, anguished listing. What makes the Jews' rejection of Jesus even more sad is the incredible privileges that they were given. Paul acknowledges the Israelites were enormously blessed. These are real blessings, tangible blessings. And yet, even with all those blessings, the grace of God must never be presumed upon. Paul, Paul makes this incredible list of the things God has done for Israel. He chose them out of all the people of the earth. 
He revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them. He gave them his word. He gave them the law. He, he showed them how to worship him rightly such that they were the only people worshiping him rightly because he had revealed himself to them. He, he made promises to them for their blessing. He gave them a lineage of faith. He chose them to be the people through whom the Savior, God in the flesh, would be born. Jesus came to them. But these great and astounding privileges did not accomplish salvation in them. The privileges that God gives do not accomplish salvation. They were real. They were astounding blessings. But the Israelites, by and large, rejected Jesus. And so we must never presume upon God's grace. It doesn't matter, friend, what privileges, what advantages you have had. If you don't surrender to the Lordship of Christ, you have no part in Him. You have no part in the blessing of God. This warning to us is just as relevant as it was to Paul's original audience. You, friend, have been given great privilege. How do I know that? Oh, I'm not talking about the kind of privilege our culture is talking about. It has to do with how much melanin you have or your economic status. Here's how I know you have great privilege. You're sitting here listening to me right now. Here's what it means. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. For most of us, we have heard it regularly. But you may have been a member of Maple Grove for 20, 20 years. You may give faithfully, regularly, you may help with VBS every year. But if you haven't embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then you are not a part of him. That, that privilege you've been given to hear the gospel week after week after week, it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything in you if you have not embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You have no share in his blessings and benefits. These, these privileges can never substitute for real saving faith. We should never assume just because we're a part of a church that loves the Lord and loves his word and teaches it from the pulpit and the classroom that that somehow guarantees us salvation. It doesn't. No, we must come to God for ourselves, trusting in him by faith alone as Christ is offered in the gospel. Week after week as we come and hear Christ offered in the gospel, see Christ offered at the table, we come again and again and again receiving him, submitting our lives before him. May God grant that we would all do that, that we would all receive him daily, live in him faithfully, lovingly calling others to do the same. May we be that church. May we be that church who is filled with thankfulness to God, filled with worship to God, filled with humility, genuine praise, filled with a passion such as we see in our brother Paul, that the lost would be saved. The sinners would be reconciled to their creator. May, may that mark us as a church more than getting antsy and worked up over doctrinal debates does, more than getting mad about the way we want things to be and the way they think they should be and the way they're not. 
Let this be what marks us as a church. And my prayer as we go through these chapters that have have caused much division, have caused much fighting among Christians, that for us it would produce praise and worship and glory and honor for the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us and called us into his kingdom and made us ambassadors of that kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you. God, that you have seen fit to save us, we who are unworthy, that you have granted to us the gift of conviction of sin, the gift of repentance from sin, that that far from being robots, we eagerly ran to the cross of Christ because of the work of your Spirit, that you, we who were dead, you have made alive, that we who were bound, you have freed We who are blind, you have given sight. You've opened our ears to hear your voice and your word. Lord, we rejoice in you and your great salvation. We put all of our hope and all of our confidence in you. And we pray, Lord, give us hearts like our brother Paul that break for the loss, that it would produce in us boldness, that it would produce in us courage that we wouldn't shrink away or hide or, or run from the opportunities you place before us to be ambassadors for your kingdom, proclaiming the lordship of Christ in this hostile world. We pray, Lord, that we would do that with love and grace, even as we proclaim the truth of your word unflinchingly. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and for this church. Thank you for these people that I love, for calling us together as family uniting us together because we are united in Christ. Pray you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.